Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest is John Fowl, the CEO of Chaucer. John's in an enviable position. He has a very large long-term backer in the form of new owner China Re, that is effectively providing almost unlimited permanent capital to his business. Chaucer's new ownership brings the ability to write almost anything, as well as access to the vast Chinese-backed Belt and Road Global Investment Initiative. But just because you can do something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. This interview turned into a really open and fun discussion. John's thoughtful and good-humoured personality shines throughout this podcast as I probe him on everything from how ESG and algorithms are going to change underwriting to where Chaucer's plans to be Chinese international PNC insurance and reinsurance growth engine will take them. John's one of those people I feel I could have on the podcast every week and we could talk about something different every time. I really enjoyed it and I think you will too. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as US-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. John, welcome to the Voice of Insurance. Well, and welcome to Chaucer. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be face-to-face again and now in your fantastic new offices in the Scalpel, number 52, Lime Street, opposite Lloyd's. Um, Lots of things have changed with Chaucer over the last few years. Obviously, you had another change of ownership. That was China Re, taking over from the Hanover Group. China is such a massive corporation. How has that changed your global outlook and strategy? It's been fantastic. They're a $70 billion asset business, right? So they're up in that really big balance sheet world. As you say, um, they're somewhat unique in terms of their foundation and their ownership. But the really interesting bit is how they bought us for the reasons we wanted to be bought. We wanted to be bought because we wanted someone who could support our growth. We felt that Chaucer could do a lot more. We delivered a great outcome for the Hanover, but moving to a new parent with that asset base and with their aspirations has been great. And we're now working on that together and looking at how we can use Chaucer's skills to develop more international business for the overall group. Obviously, we're PNC, they're a life and PNC company, but in that international specialty PNC insurance and reinsurance, 
we're their growth engine, and it's a great time to be someone's growth engine. So when you talk about aspirations there, we should probably look upon China Re as sort of perpetual capital in some ways. That, would that be right? Is this much more a very long game, a 50, 60, 100-year sort of game? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of China Re's strategy is they are a very long-term outlook business. They have been, frankly, since foundation. And every conversation we've ever had with them has been very much with a nice combination of the long term and how things will ideally play out. And then, of course, all the good business management practices of, okay, but what does that mean for the next 12 months? But absolutely, perpetual capital is probably a really good way of describing them, which then allows us to plan very strategically. And again, that's a nice position to be in for a business like us. So we should look upon you as effectively the specialty arm of I think the international PNC arm actually is probably the way to think about it because it's broader than just specialty. So it could be more general commercial PNC. um, Well, I mean, or personal lines. I mean, you have seen in theory, but in practice, we are what we are, right? And what we said during the sales process and the conversations have continued down the same line. Now we've been part of China E for just coming up for three years. Is this is what we do? We do specialty. PNC insurance and reinsurance. As you know, we've got a past in more personal lines. But what we worked out several years ago is do the thing you're really good at. And that is the specialty side of it. It's the problem solving type of underwriting. And we could get into all sorts of conversations about expense ratio and how you manage that if you're trying to be a slick personal lines carrier at the same time as trying to be a specialty carrier. We've just found that it's that specialty insurance and then the reinsurance bit that we're really good at. And that's what they wanted to buy. Now, what their longer term aspirations might be and whether they would want more personal lines insurance, I don't know. But they're a reinsurance business at their heart. So you can kind of see the nice mix that they're a reinsurance business. They own an insurance company in China and they've bought a reinsurance specialty insurance business for their international goals. And it seems to fit. Funnily enough, I just had Mark Wheeler on the program saying, he said, he prefaced it by saying rather controversially, he said that he didn't feel that specialty fit in with standard PNC businesses. But I think by implication, specialty fits in pretty well within reinsurance businesses because obviously they know about big numbers and volatility and other things and what it's all about. And of course, specialist understanding of risk. Yeah, I think that's right. There is obviously a clear parallel in that, as you say, what you're really doing is you're trying to say to a customer, we understand your risk and we can help you with it. And when we write reinsurance, the vast majority of what we do, like a lot of our sort of more London market founded colleagues, the reinsurance we do is often excess of loss. So you are literally saying, we'll take that volatility bit when we're writing your reinsurance in the same way as when we're talking to a risk manager of a commercial business. We're saying, we'll take that difficult bit of risk, that again, the volatility risk there, we can deal with that. And then, as we all know, what we then do is take all these different bits of volatility and try and pull them together into something that works overall. But I think that's right. There's more of a parallel there than when you're looking at you know, many millions of personal lines customers. And as we know, in that general PNC space, actually a lot of the pressure on the business is to really drive out the volatility from the results. And that doesn't fit at all well with specialty and excess of loss reinsurance, in my mind. But I, you know, it's just my view of the world. Because you can diversify your portfolio as much as possible within all different forms of specialty, but you're still going to get some spikes here and there. Right? Yeah, that's what we're about. We're about spikes. That's what we're good at. Whether it's large property values on large risks or whether it's difficult casualty, um, you know, everything in that real specialty sector around marine aviation, transportation, energy, that's all 
tough stuff that you need to be able to get your arms around. I suppose if it was easy, it could be commoditized and then someone else would do it. Yeah, maybe you wouldn't base it in Lime Street as a head office. And I always joke that everywhere else we've got offices, we seem to, there's a gravitational pull to the most expensive parts of the world, you know, whether it's Singapore or Dubai. or These are places you have to know that you're there to do a specific job rather than thinking you can do everything. Yeah, quite. There's insurance and reinsurance and international specialty journalists. We find that, yes, we always end up in the most expensive places for our conferences as well. <laughs> Much to the annoyance of the accounts department. Quite, yeah. Yes, they never quite understand why can't we all do it at some sort of out-of-town car park sort of aircraft hangar type space, but never mind. Now, you've got effectively unlimited capital. You don't have to go to third-party investors anymore because you've got this great big partner. And they're there to fuel your growth. So what are the growth plans for 2022? Effectively, you've got a carte blanche. Yeah, when we became part of China Re, we felt that on almost a status quo basis, without getting too carried away about market conditions, that just by scaling up our existing capability and assuming there was enough business out there that was actually priced right, we could probably grow at about a 10% compound rate. Now, what won't surprise you is that given the way the market has then moved, we're growing quicker than that now. There might be a period, obviously, where that then tails off. So we're sort of low teens of overall growth. And you know, Lloyd's have been very good in supporting our growth aspirations uh, where we're using Syndicate 1084. And obviously, equally, we've got our Irish company, which allows us to also grow outside Lloyd's. But overall, that all winds up to thinking that at the moment, and of course, it's, everything's crystal ball gazing, that we'll be in that sort of low teens growth for next year. That sort of 10% permanent growth, you know, regardless of rate, is it because those classes are higher growth than GDP itself, generally? No, most of what we thought when we were going through this process four years ago, really, was about just doing more of what we were good at. So not taking a sort of, if you like, an economic view and saying these are things that are growing faster than GDP, but just saying here are the areas that we're very good at, that if we were backed by a bigger balance sheet that had the ability to support us and accept more volatility, we could just naturally grow. Then you get to the devil in the detail, because, of course, all those lines, if you like, if you've got a line per class that we do, they all waggle in slightly different ways. But obviously, the market has created a situation where we're seeing far more rate adequacy on more business than that sort of 10% theoretical number was based on. But yeah, our growth is all really channeled still at that stuff where we feel we are good. I think by our nature, we're not an opportunistic business. We do like to be in things for the long run. We like to have a view. And then frankly, the volume of business we end up with tends to be how much of what we've been trying to target hits those price adequacy requirements. And that's the market cycle bit that's been advantageous. But growing in the political lines, which have obviously been interestingly impacted by the COVID downturn, but obviously we're now coming out of that, particularly looking at the reinsurance lines, where we definitely have the ability to do more of what we're good at. I'd say those were the key areas, but pretty much line by line, we're feeling good about growth at the moment. That's a nice position. We had had a long period where that wasn't true. So you're happy with rate adequacy generally, and is it still improving, would you say? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, again, we think it will... In aggregate, for our sort of portfolio, we think we'll still be getting um, price increases above what I'd call loss cost inflation. So that's everything, roll everything in next year, but only just. And maybe the other point is 90% of what we do at the moment, we think is now rate adequate. Okay, so that's a nice picture. The really interesting bit for me, especially when you 
are looking at inflationary and loss trend numbers at the moment, which is lots of different things playing into those. The interesting thing is a good chunk of that 90, probably a third of that 90, I'd, I'd say was sailing close to the wind. So it can't actually really afford to see a downturn in rates. We've got a number of areas where we have to continue to at least get the loss cost. Otherwise, they will quickly start to look unsustainable again. And I think what a lot of us saw through the last decade, obviously driven somewhat by a lack of major cat activity after Tohoku, was this sort of compound rate deterioration that meant you had lines of business that were perpetually underperforming. And I don't know how much people can really afford. You can't go in to a decade thinking that's going to be the case. It's not sustainable. So you have to keep making sure everything that goes on the books is price adequate and then just adapt to the volume that that creates. So we're not in a situation where it's sort of massively price adequate and huge amounts of fat in the, in the rates that then slowly gets eked out over the next decade as it gets chipped away and compounded. At the moment, it's fairly adequate, but only just. Yeah, I don't think we've got any of those. 20 years ago, we were writing business thinking it was rate adequate. And then afterwards, we found out it had been really rate adequate. And there are other lines of business where people kind of knew that these were fantastic rates because various parts of the market had gone into a meltdown crisis dislocation. I don't see any of that now. I see good discipline. I see good, sensible pricing and, as I say, rate adequacy for our portfolio. But no, I mean, I'd love to say I was constantly tripping over books of business where we just thought we were getting huge amounts of fat in the price. It's just not true. But you're happy because if you've got just a tiny bit better than loss cost inflation every year compounding, of course, you just get richer and richer every year, wouldn't you? If that happened starting now, yes, because the last, I'd say the last few years have been the recovery bit. It's actually getting the rates back to a sustainable level. And now they're at a sustainable level. Absolutely. If we could keep ticking over, then in theory, um, then in theory, our plan numbers would look healthy every year from now on. But we both know, Mark, that won't happen, will it? I mean, that's just not going to happen. No, but I suppose you'd say you're saying that at least you're at the, we've come through it all phase and you've got the relief phase, but you're not in the relief phase where you're suddenly going to start giving 10 points off to get No, as I say, that that just doesn't work. The maths doesn't work, especially, I think, as inflation is clearly, loss-cost inflation is clearly higher than it has been for some time. More data on wage inflation that was actually quite striking. And again, so even that's just the effect of that on bodily injury compensation, for example, is just going to be enormous. But um, we're talking quite substantial numbers. Yeah, and as someone who literally grew up in the casualty market, that social inflation point, and particularly when it comes to you know, the size of judgments, the sentiment um, of the plaintiff bar, that's not going to get better. That's going to get tougher and tougher, I think, over the next decade. Now, I never understood why, you know, in the US you could write all this stuff without indexation clauses. Of course, you know, the Europeans with all higher inflation historically sort of ended up with those in the contract. Yeah, that's a really, it's a funny enough, we were talking about that here a couple of weeks ago. It's a very interesting just bit of, I think, market norm tradition type stuff. And I've found that writing non-dollar business and then writing dollar business. The way I think about that, though, is actually I'm fine with that because it's this point again that if you know what you're doing, if you're a specialist and you're taking risk, the fact that if you just compare, say, UK motor with US workers' comp excess of loss, where in one you typically index clause away the inflation and the other you don't, that's fine. You just have to know what that's doing to the risk. And you get rewarded from understanding that better 
than other people. Yeah, but then you're not an economist. No, but we're not a lot of things, right? <laughs> but we're, 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 we're an insurer and reinsurer, but that doesn't mean that economics doesn't play into that in the same way as, you know, understanding engineering plays into that. And the numbers are the numbers, aren't they? I suppose you just got to look at the numbers. And take a view on them and build up your view. That's the bit in the specialist, isn't it? That's what that specialist bit means. That it's, as you said earlier, if it was that simple, kind of everyone would do it. It's being able to work out what is going to drive loss and quantifying it. Another thing, obviously, with the new ownership is that perhaps before you had a slight limit on particularly, obviously, US cat risk. And obviously, that's something now that you could increase. I read an article where you were saying that you could increase. But is that something you actually, you know, it's all very well saying you could do something, but would you actually want to increase cat aggregate at the moment, given where cat pricing seems to be a bit, you know, flaccid? So yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's really well put. I mean, and that is the... Um the multi-billion dollar question, because I think I separate in my mind again, I, I have to keep things simple, Mark, you'll have, you understand that. And my point on that is appetite is a sort of strategic issue, right? And then price adequacy drives how much of that appetite you're actually going to use up. So yes, we have the appetite to grow how much cat we write, because as part of a big group, and especially as our cat risk doesn't sit, frankly, geographically, where Chinese cat risk sits, and that's somewhat unique in our world because most people's cat risk all concentrates on exactly the same peaks, then we have the appetite to grow cat. But absolutely, we can only do it if we think we're getting paid correctly for it. And I think the market is in an interesting position there. I do think going into 2022, it's probably, maybe it's more interesting every year, but I think particularly because of the European losses, and we have found it so difficult to find European cat business that we actually think pays the right price because I think in the market generally people use it to diversify the North American cat but well now there's some real loss impact there and people have been hurt that could actually change be great because we'll be talking to the same people and saying we'd still like to write your program but what's the price going to be and have you got room for us and then again I think everyone's going back over this point of are we picking up all the lost drivers in, in all of our cat? But when we just look at that North American cat, are we picking up all the loss in there? Are we charging for it properly? Are we getting the right price? And that's a good conversation to be part of. If we can get confident enough that we are, then I'd love to see us increase our cat footprint. So this is all about the price. It's just, again, great adequacy over the long term. It has to be. That's why we're still here, frankly, after all these years, is clearly in general, we've been able to put enough price adequate business on the books. And that is what will mean whether we're here and trading on in decades to come will be, are we putting business on the books at a sustainable price? You just didn't sound particularly excited about any class of business before, though, you know, weren't just stumbling across books of business with fantastic rate adequacy and great sort of, you know, built in profit. But within that, where are the classes, you know, when you look at your management information coming back in from the underwriting teams, where are you most happy? Gosh, most happy. That's a really... Um, Least unhappy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that wasn't. It's the word. Yeah, it's a good holistic word, isn't it? Happy. Because I think this is a very individual thing for every business. And I think it is the areas where you're most happy are the areas where you honestly think you've got something to offer customers. You honestly think differentiated product great people, fantastic claims adjustment, whatever, and you've got that feeling of rate adequacy. So you're an area that I'd say that when I say the political classes, what I mean there is, I mean, um, political violence, terror, etc. 
but also the political risk. I think those are very interesting areas for us. They have been over the last couple of decades, but because we have very, very good people on the underwriting and the claim side, I think we understand those classes, we understand how they work, and we still feel that there's the potential to get paid properly for them. And to your point earlier, actually, they're very dynamic original markets, right? I mean, political violence and political risk that is one of the most dynamic areas to underwrite. It changes so quickly, but it's changing in a way that should create more demand. So that's good for us because we can try and meet that demand. So I'd say on the insurance side, those are the areas I'm probably most excited about. Um, cyber is exciting, but it's exciting partly because of there's so many sort of unknown unknowns out there. So that's an area to be excited about, but always cautious. And as I said, I think because of, again, increasing demand and because of some further correction, both the short and the long tail side of reinsurance is very interesting for us now because away from CAT even and on the specialty side and on the casualty side, I think there's still very strong demand for good reinsurance products. And again, I think we've just got really good people who are very good at trying to get inside the heads of the buyer and understand what they're really trying to buy and why and that allows you to be working with the right clients and that's probably the biggest thing it's very hard to make money underwriting the wrong clients so you're in the more differentiated specialty end of reinsurance where client knowledge and client demand is more discerning would you say i think that's where we're at our best i honestly think that's where we're at our best i mean areas of it can get a little bit commoditized but i think um being brave enough to have your own opinion on stuff is something that's valued by the clients. Those clients are all well-informed clients. And actually, it's the bit that I think the brokers value is that they know that they get a, a sensible view, even if it's not one that entirely agrees with the firm order price they were hoping to do. They're willing to work with you on that. And is there a sense that this renewal, the last couple of renewals, reinsurers have been able to ride along the coattails of what has been more an insurance-driven hardening or resetting of the marketplace? This time, are they just going to carry on riding along or are they going to start digging in for themselves? The reinsurers are ever so slightly more squeezed with retros properly moved. Okay, they've been very happy on proportional business, but have they been getting the rate, have they been getting that pay rise that everyone else has got? Yeah, if you're writing pro rata, then particularly, obviously, you can pretty much just hang on the shirt or the coattails, sorry. That's not a big part of what we do. It's an important part when we do do it. But I think excess of loss, you've always had to be pricing for your bit of the exposure. And when the primary markets are recovering in rate, what it helps, it just helps the economics for the reinsured because you know, they've hopefully got some more margins. So if you are saying, well, you know, for the excess of loss, we need more as well, it doesn't become a sort of insoluble equation for them. But that's why you know, for every risk you write, there are the ones you can't write because you just don't think you're getting paid right at your level. I don't think that's changed over the years. It's just a market that's got margin on the insurance side is an easier market to be a reinsurer in. I just think that's just sort of almost a truism. Well, I suppose, yeah, well, they can afford it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right, well, you mentioned before about the Bermuda platform, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is a, it's a subsidiary of the Irish platform, isn't it? That- yeah, yeah, it's a branch. Branch, sorry. It's, a, it's yes. a branch of our, yes, exactly, of our insurance company. It can also access the Lloyds if it needs to, but that was how we set it up, yeah. And so what's the rationale behind that platform? Yeah, well, one of our theories over the last, um, gosh, however many years it is now, has been to it's that kind of customer proximity thing of saying, where are we needed? We've never wanted to kind of just 
plant flags all around the world. I don't think that really works for us. But that is why we're in those expensive insurance and reinsurance hubs, because we feel we're needed there, i.e. the people who broke to us, our clients value having someone in that particular market hub. And Bermuda was clearly something that was missing for us. And we do feel that there is business, and we have definitely seen this in its first sort of full year of operation, there is business that goes into Bermuda and doesn't make it all the way to London. So putting some top-class people into an office in Bermuda to just meet that demand and see that business, that was the strategy, and it's working really well. It's entirely complementary to the London books. It fits pretty well with them. The teams are very joined up in their their thinking about risk and price. So, so far, so good. But there's no risk of dilution there or distraction to you as a manager to think, oh, I've got all these different balance sheets and different regulators and other stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, we've got two legal entities, right? We've got we've got the syndicates, which is all CS, which also syndicates limited, the managing agent, and we've got the Irish company. You know, having a branch of the Irish company in Bermuda doesn't complicate things that much and yeah, we do try very hard and I know lots of other people will do this as well but we do try and make sure that it doesn't really matter where in the world you're based you still feel very much Chaucer you know trying to make sure that that common approach and understanding of how Chaucer sees the world and how Chaucer operates is as easy to live with in Bermuda as it is in London, Ipswich, Dubai, wherever else. So would that be right to say that then your identity your sort of brand identity is very much still a Lloyd's when people think of Chaucer, they should think of a Lloyd's business that's just going global. Genuinely, what we'd like people to think of is the name Chaucer has been around long enough now. I don't mean Jeffrey, I mean ours. Um, that it's a, it is a specialty insurance and reinsurance group that has two lots of paper. But you're right, next year we celebrate our 100th year from the original foundings of Chaucer as a Lloyd's business. And I think all that means is like a lot of other specialty businesses that Lloyd's heritage is something we've built on but I wouldn't want people to think of us as a Lloyd's business with a non-Lloyd's company I'd like people to think of us as a carrier as someone who's willing to take risk and who has these options as to where that risk is taken whether it's taken onto a Lloyd's balance sheet or a non-Lloyd's balance sheet but whichever it is you're still talking to the same type of people who are looking at risk in the same sort of way I suppose you're still primarily a Lloyd's business, but in numbers, pure numbers terms. So as obviously a major stakeholder in Lloyd's itself, are you happy with the current pace of the market reform? It seems like market reform, it's forever with us, isn't it? I guess it should always be forever <laughs> with us, shouldn't it? Um, but I think the, uh, the pattern we're in now, where I think, you know, sort of boiling it down to a couple of major things is key. The digitization is the really important bit. I really am a huge believer that if we can actually make being a Lloyd's business a competitive advantage because you're linked into a digitized way of doing business, that's got enormous potential. And as we both know, we've been wrestling with various iterations of this for three decades, literally as long as I've been in that industry. But we do seem to be at a point where with a bit of a push, well, maybe with a hell of a push, we really could get there. Obviously, the COVID-driven flip to PPL, fantastic for people like us. You know, we're very committed to PPL. But now turning that into something that really works for everything and can get the data coming through the system, that should really drive efficiency, drive down the frictional cost, reduce the OPEX. Well, that, of course, that's to everyone's advantage, not least of all the customer, because we have to charge the customer enough to pay the losses and pay all our expenses. 
and we just want to make a sensible return on economic capital in our case or on equity for others and if you can make some savings on the OPEX there that's as I say to everyone's advantage. You're happy with the speed of things or is it always? Uh, no it could always be faster I'd love to see the the PPL bit take huge steps but it has to be done properly. Yeah always wanting to move quicker but I am a realist I realise these things can't be built overnight. Are you an optimist that you think we will get there this time? Yeah, yes, partly because I do think we have to. I mean, I'm not, it's like, I can't quite work out. We can't have another sort of expensive failure no, platform I, that doesn't work or has no, to well, so, again. No, we can't afford that, but almost more that we, I mean, to try and make it sound more positive, but it's a sort of negative positive. We can't afford to not make this progress because this is, this is life now. We all know that we are relatively behind the time, shall we say, compared to other areas of financial services and in some ways quite a lot. I mean, I do literally remember Big Bang in the banking sector, right? And it's many decades ago. We have to make this step now. Otherwise, we'll be a dinosaur in another 10 years' time. And dinosaurs don't tend to do well. Looking on the positive side of technology and the application of technology in insurance, so we've had a great um, insurtech wave. A big part of that, a spearhead of that at Lloyd's, has been algorithmic underwriting. What's your view on that? Is it sort of thing that you're going to be having a go at? Or have you got people working on this right now? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. and I'm probably about to sound a bit trite, but I don't mean to. But underwriting is an algorithm, right? I mean, underwriters, from as long as I've known, and I think probably going back to Cuthbert Heath, um, try and work out what questions they need to know the answers to in order to decide whether they can write a risk and at what price they can write it and how big a line they should write on it, right? So it's like a proposal form as those big sort of if you, this, you then take that. It in. I mean, most underwriters have got a list of mental questions or they've literally got a physical list of questions. We've all got pricing models, some of which are immensely complex and statistically robust, frankly, some of which may be less so. But my point on that, sorry, without (laughs) taking you down that rabbit hole, is my point is that to me, when we talk about algorithmic underwriting, what we're thinking is how much of that decision tree, how much of that quantification of risk can we do quickly and efficiently in a digitized manner versus that bit that as specialty underwriters, we need to still just take away and think about the nuances on. And the more that we can do in the digitized format, the more efficient we are. And, and frankly, the more accurate. Because if an underwriter is picking up a case file where a huge chunk of the quantification around the risk has been done and has been done in a way where there's not much room for error, then they're, they're just doing the real value add bit of looking at that and thinking about why that's what's coming out of the model and what else they need to think about before they make that final decision to write or not write it. To get back, probably to be fair to you, Mark, to get back more directly to your question of where are we on the more sort of headline-grabbing side of it, yes, we are looking at it in very specific areas where we think parts of what we do um, really lend themselves to more fully algorithmic underwriting, but we haven't gone down the tracker underwriting algorithm where we're trying to build an algorithm that says if this business is led by this person and falls into this class and it's priced like this, we can write it. And that's more because, frankly, we can deploy our risk appetite at the moment without doing that. I think some of those concepts are very exciting. And I think, you know, our competitor or peer, that old quandary of competitors versus peer in the market who are doing it, are doing it really interestingly. I think it's really interesting stuff. It's just not something that we've seen as being one where we need to be at the vanguard. And is that because it's 
probably if it's done correctly, it's likely to end up being a very commoditized, low return sort of environment. And presumably, is that just because you don't want to be in that space? Again, maybe it's not what we're naturally good at. We are better at having our own opinion. And this is slightly different way of doing things. So it doesn't maybe lend itself that neatly to our core skills. Um, But as I say, I think it's very interesting. I think what it will actually drive is a sort of almost like a derivative market. And again, that's fine. But you always get to choose if you're in the primary market, do you also play in the derivative market or do you just stay in the primary market? And we're sort of upfront and personal type underwriters. So that doesn't really lend to the derivative model so well. So with you, is it more the technologies to things like triage so you can increase people's productivity so the system could have looked at a thousand submissions? And your top underwriter, you walk into your desk and it's already sort of selected the first 20 that it thinks you should look at. I love that sort of idea. I love the idea of some of our underwriters almost, you know, sitting on top of a big machine, pulling a few levers really skillfully rather than having to press every button. Being but, asked the difficult decisions on those 20. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think that's also very educational for our young underwriters as they come up because I think if you're digging into a model and understanding why it's saying what it's saying and then you're sitting down with maybe one of your senior colleagues and saying so what are we going to do on this that's I think where you start to learn those nuances so I think that's one key thing for us more directly and more immediately there are products where I think the insure techs, by being able to sort of work in their own space without working from inside a carrier, have come up with some fantastic stuff. So some of the parametric type solutions, the Yohaku thing we've done recently, where we can write something we understand, which is basically Caribbean windstorm risk. We understand that, but we can actually sell it to some people that we couldn't have got to without a smart insure tech solution. I love that as well. And those are those, we're trying to work out which ones of those really fit us nicely and add value somewhere without thinking that we can sort of boil the insure tech ocean. That doesn't feel very likely to work out well for us if we take too many massive bites. We've had this really interesting sort of cultural explosion and a huge amount of investment going in the last five years. What do you think you've learned as a sort of Chaucer interacting with that whole insure tech world? Yeah, it's this whole thing that we've thought about around innovation generally, the sort of the duality of it all, that in your core business, if you're like us, you have so many embedded controls that where the insure techs have been great is in a different environment, they can spin things up so much more quickly and think about you know things from a different angle. And I think the really exciting bit is the intersection between the two. And the people we found it easiest to work with are the people where we understand what they bring to the party. But they do actually understand that you do need this thing called a carrier balance sheet somewhere. And if you can get that intersection between what they're trying to do and what we're trying to do right, then those are some great partnerships. So we've enjoyed our participation in the Lloyd's Lab. We're currently mentoring three startups in there. And as you meet various different people, you find these ones where that intersection looks the strongest. And that's exciting stuff. And I think we learn a lot from those relationships. There's a different way of doing stuff, right? There's a quicker, faster, more modern way of thinking about problem solution than maybe some of our traditional methods. But you're interested in the ones that... There's that other culture clash is that with technology firms, particularly those VC-funded ones, the Silicon Valley ones, have had a model where you don't have to make any profit until about year 10. And then suddenly, of course, it's winner takes all. And then, you know, you become this trillion-dollar company overnight. Well, not overnight, but, you know, after 10 years of losing lots of money. But presumably that's the biggest culture clash 
to say, well, you've got to make underwriting profit. Yeah, but that's the point, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely right. You know, if you look at valuations and you look at valuations of carriers versus valuations of insurance techs, it's chalk and cheese. It's a totally different way of thinking. We're a carrier. We're an underwriter. So we see, in terms of driving value, we see that as capturing good underwriting risk, having great underwriting relationships. Yeah, I'm sure if I had my time again and I was, you know, smart enough, I'd be sitting there thinking, well, hang on a second, if I can just build something in the insure tech space that works, the valuation metrics on that are a lot more exciting. Um, and that's why that attracts the investment community, right? They can see an in and an out and a huge profit. I'm afraid ours is a longer game. And yeah, I've been here 20 years, so clearly I'm a sort of long game type person. But I just think that's what being an underwriter is. It is a long game. I think that that's the lesson. That's the difference between sort of you know the traditional underwriters are from Venus and all these other people from Mars or whatever it is. Yeah. They are from different planets. But yeah. uh, well, that's great. Um, the biggest thing that's been happening in the biggest three-letter abbreviation of the year has been ESG. You know, that's come not it's come out of nowhere, but everything's been building. And I suppose having COP twenty-six and everything else has really put it front and centre of everything. So, as a specialty insurer, how can you best help your own clients? Obviously, we're in a lot of these. You know, that are carbon-heavy businesses, you know, energy, all sorts of things. What's your sort of strategy to help those clients and support them as they navigate to what's hopefully a net zero future over the next 20 years? Yeah, probably the answer somewhat in the question, really, is helping them transition. We all have to transition. We know that we've got to transition quickly. And reading and listening to the sort of outcome of COP26, the most important thing about it is what are people going to bring back to the table next year? Because the change, the speed of change needs to increase. It needs to be quicker. And I think we as an industry and we as a company have got a really useful role to play in that, that we can help drive that transition away from carbon. We can work with our clients who are currently wrestling with that themselves. And when I say wrestling with, I wouldn't underestimate the amount of potential risk that some of our clients are having to take on because they're simultaneously trying to continue with some of that more carbon-heavy business, but they are trying to decommission it and run it down. They are simultaneously trying to very rapidly build greener alternative sources of revenue. That's a lot for them to be trying to deal with. And so our ability is classic sort of specialty insurers to step back and say, well, I can tell you how that looks to us. It looks bad on both sides, doesn't it? You've got sort of your rust bucket industry being slowly run down and not obviously not being invested in actively. <laughs> it's dead money. And then yeah, the I, other side growing so fast that I, I th- it's like, we need this green stuff. I, I, so I, never mind about the health and safety part yeah, of it. I, I think all of our customers would be very ready to accept the fact that the rust bucket stuff isn't very good for any of us and none of us want that. But no, that's right. It's really, really challenging. So it's an increase in risk net. It's an it? increase in risk. But that's good, right? If you like, it's an increase in risk that isn't just driven by GDP growth. It's an increase in risk that is driven by everyone meeting their need to transition and get to a lower carbon profile. That's the sort of stuff we like to try and tackle. I mean, it, I could literally walk you out of this room put you in front of some of my energy underwriters who could talk to you for hours about this subject and how they're trying to work through it, how they're trying to work with clients to make this transition happen. We like challenging risks. This is great, but it is phenomenally challenging. I think your point about the sort of ESG point is the investment community are at least a decade ahead on terms of trying to describe ESG risk in investment and quantify it. Around our own 
carbon footprint, it's not that difficult to quantify that. But when we get to underwriting and you're trying to pull it all together and have a view, that's the bit of work we're really doing now to try and say, so how would we measure, truly measure our own full carbon footprint? And then how would we set ourselves targets of how do we get from where we are to where we want to be? At the same time, as trying to underwrite the transition risk of those people. It's not as simple as just saying, well, anything that's not lovely and green, we're just going to walk away from. I don't think that's our purpose in life. Our purpose is to accelerate the speed of change through what we do. I think if everyone's doing that, whether you're an energy company, if you're building wind farms, or maybe you're more from the carbon-heavy sector of that, whether you're an insurer, whether you're a bank, we've got this collective responsibility to drive each other forward quickly. Otherwise, we're not going to be living in a particularly pleasant place in 10 years' time. Obviously, you're also involved with the Belt and Road Consortium, probably through your ownership of China Re. You know, lots of environmentalists walking up and down Lime Street these days. So if I ask one of them, what's the Belt and Road, you know, they'd say it's, it's a bad thing because it's exporting carbon-heavy industry around the world. How would you counter that, you know, that assertion that, you know, how do your ESG aspirations sit within that Belt and Road initiative? Oh, they sit above it. So you're absolutely right. The Belt and Road is something that got increased focus here after we became part of China Re. And it's actually, frankly, and I'm certainly guilty of this, it took me a while to really understand what the opportunity was for people like us in the Belt and Road. And it really plays off, obviously, that China Re, our parent company, are very much part of the Chinese SOE network. They understand the Belt and Road. They have an eye to the opportunities coming out and where that investment is going. That leads into your second point. What's really interesting about those Belt and Road investments is, one, you know, the numbers are huge, but also within there are some, frankly, very ESG-friendly investments. I'm not kidding you. I was in a meeting last week with some of my colleagues from China Re, and we were looking at a page of five Belt and Road initiatives that were things that we had collectively looked at in terms of, you know, did this fit appetite? Could we write it? Et cetera, et cetera. And one was um, transmission and distribution lines. So that's electricity. So that's not, a, you know, it depends where the electricity is coming from, determines whether it's uh, carbon heavy. There were three wind farms and a railway, right? So the way we look at it and the way my underwriting teams actively look at it as they say so great if we can get this sort of additional business source through the belt and road and through linking up people in that chain and we've created these consortiums that we've led off um, with our peer group in lloyds the esg kind of lens sits over the belt and road lens it still needs anything out the belt and road still needs to fit what we want to do from an ESG point of view. And you're going to be view. held to account for your own ESG credentials and what you write as, a, as an underwriter so... Yeah. You can't write too much carbon-heavy stuff. No, that's exactly right. So we can, I suppose, if you like, filter through these Belt and Road opportunities and find the ones that fit our appetite, and our appetite is ever-increasingly informed by our ESG stance. So the pressure to green the whole world is going to be felt in the Belt and Road anyway? It very actively is. Uh, again, the conversation I was having last week was actually saying that ESG demand is literally actively changing the type of projects that are getting financing in the Belt and Road Initiative. So again, it's part of this, you know, who can move the fastest, who can green the quickest, and how can we all kind of get each other there? And that's part of our role as a financial services, that we're effectively increasing the cost of capital to the dirty stuff, and we're making it much cheaper for clean stuff. Yeah, and I think the interesting bit is when you talk about the rust buckets, I think increasingly what will happen over the next few years, it will become very difficult to get insurance if you're not 
transitioning quickly and responsibly. That's not a Chaucer comment, that's we're one player in a market, right? But that will happen. Well, it seems to be very difficult, you know, for some of these Australian sort of open cast coal mine projects seem to be, you know, really almost on the rocks now. It has to be the point where governments step in and save them because the private insurance market simply can't do it anymore. Well, this is the layers, isn't it? You've got individual projects, you've got individual investors, you've got government policy, as you say, um, and then you've got all of us sharing our pale blue dot, right? Um, so we have a place in that, everyone has a place in that, and we will work very hard to execute our role in that responsibly um, and do a good job by people. And do you, are you optimistic about some of the schemes that are coming, being announced, probably timed to coincide with COP26, some of the insurance schemes, sort of ESG scoring, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think that scoring point is really key, the measurability to sort of say, so how do we really quantify where we're at now? And then when we quantify that again in a year's time, you know, what's an appropriate target to have aimed to get there? Because that's something we can just feed into the business model to say, you know, it's rather like, you know, underlying loss ratios, isn't it? It's saying, look, this portfolio needs to improve. It's not making any money. We need to drive three, four, five points of loss out of the portfolio. Well, we want to be driving three, four, five, I don't know what the number is, points of better ESG profile. But that ESG profile has to be measured in a valid way. Otherwise, it's sort of more anecdotal views of your carbon footprint or you know, your impact on society. So we're putting a lot of time and effort into thinking about how to do that in a practical way that then makes it easy for everyone in the business to have that transparency on our ESG profile. And do you think good ESG scoring risks are better risks anyway? I think the, you know, the evidence is all there, right? I mean, that's kind of, I'd probably, I'd just take that as a given now, partly because it just resonates with everything we've it's, just, it's about the culture of that company. Does it exactly, tell you a lot about exactly. that board? Or? Uh, insureds that think about risk management have typically performed better than ones that don't. So um, <laughs> companies that have a board that take their impact on the environment and society and have good governance and they take that seriously, it's probably pretty much a straight correlation with their likelihood to have loss and actually how they react when they do have a loss. So I find that a really easy argument to buy into and the, the stats are there as well that show they are. Well, I've come to the end of my list of questions. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. I think we've covered all sorts of extra things that weren't on my list of questions. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time and with your mind, actually, sort of opening it up for us all to listen. Always dangerous, but thank you. It's been, um, been really, really good fun. Thanks very much, John. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.advantageg.com. The voice of insurance.com. <laughs>